Hi. Hello. What's up? How's it hanging? I appreciate you joining me today for another episode of Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah. Let's get started. On today's episode, I will be talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Heist. Isabella Stewart was born in New York City on April 14, 1840. She was the daughter of wealthy linen merchant David Stewart and Adela Stewart. From age 5 to 15, she attended a nearby academy for girls where she studied music, art, dance, French, and Italian. At 16, her family moved to Paris where she enrolled in a school for American girls. Her classmates included members of the wealthy Gardner family from Boston. At 17, she went to Italy and saw Gian Giacomo Polita Pezzoli's collection of Renaissance art arranged in rooms designed to recall historical eras. She said that if she ever inherited a significant amount of money, she wanted to have a house that was similar for people to visit and enjoy. She returned to New York in 1858 at the age of 18. After she returned, former classmate Julia Gardner invited her to Boston, where she met Julia's brother John. He was one of Boston's most eligible bachelors. They married in Grace Church on April 10th of 1860 and lived in a house that Isabella's father gave them. They resided there for the rest of John's life. John and Isabella had one son who was born on June 18th of 1863, but he died two years later from pneumonia on March 15, 1865. Not even a year later, Isabella suffered a miscarriage and fell into an extreme depression and withdrew from society. Her doctor suggested that her and John take a trip to lift her spirits. So they boarded a ship and traveled for almost a year visiting Scandinavia and Russia, but spent most of their time in Paris. The trip was a turning point for Isabella's health. She began a lifelong habit of keeping scrapbooks of her travels and established her reputation as a fashionable, high-spirited socialite. In 1875, John's brother Joseph died, leaving three small boys. John and Isabella adopted them and raised them as their own. In a biography about her life, biographer Morris Carter wrote that in her duties to these boys, she was faithful. Isabella and John began traveling across America, Europe, and Asia very frequently to discover foreign cultures and expand their knowledge of art around the world. The earliest works in her collection were accumulated during their trips to Europe. In 1891, she started to focus on European fine art after inheriting $1.75 million from her father. One of her very first purchases was the concert by Vermeer which was purchased at a Paris auction house in 1892. She then began collecting from other places such as Egypt, Turkey, and the Far East. In the late 1890s, she began collecting in earnest, rapidly building a world-class collection, primarily of paintings and statues, but also had tapestries, photographs, silver, ceramics, manuscripts, and architectural elements such as doors, stained glass, and mantelpieces. She traveled with a friend to collect for the Harvard Lampoon Building, a faux Flemish castle in Harvard Square. She donated many pieces of art to the castle over her years of collecting, and the value is uncertain due to the secret nature of the Lampoon. By 1896, Isabella and John realized that their home was no longer sufficient to house their growing collection of art. 
After John's sudden death in 1898, Isabella realized their shared dream of building a museum for their treasures. She purchased land for the museum in the marshy Fenway area of Boston and hired architect Willard Sears to build it and model after the Renaissance palaces of Venice. She was involved in every aspect of the design. The building surrounds a glass-covered garden courtyard, which was the first of its kind in the United States. After the building was complete, Isabella spent over a year installing her collection according to her personal aesthetic. The museum privately opened on January 1, 1903, with a grand opening celebration that featured performances by some members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. There was champagne and donuts served to all the guests. It was then opened to the public several months later. Isabella used the fourth floor as her residence. In 1919, Isabella suffered her first of many strokes and died five years later on July 17, 1924, at the age of 84. After her death, the fourth floor of the museum served as residence for the museum's director for over 60 years. When Anne Hawley became the director, she decided to not live there, and it was more recently converted into offices. In Isabella's will, she created an endowment of $1 million and outlined stipulations for support of the museum, including that the permanent collection not be altered. She left sizable donations to the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children, Animal Rescue League of Boston, and Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It was also requested that the Cauley Fathers celebrate an annual memorial requiem mass. It is performed each year on her birthday. Not even six months after Anne Haldy became the new director, the museum was robbed. The robbery occurred on March 18, 1990. Several people leaving a party near the museum witnessed the robbers around 12.30 in the morning. They were disguised as police officers and were parked in a hatchback. The guards on duty that evening were Rick Abbott, 23, and Randy Heestand, 25. It was Randy's first time on night shift. It was policy that one guard was to patrol the galleries with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie, while the other guard sat at the security desk. During Rick's first patrol, the fire alarm sounded in different rooms, but he couldn't locate any fire or smoke. He then returned to the security room to check the panel. It indicated smoke in multiple rooms. He figured it was some sort of malfunction and shut it down. He then completed his rounds, making a stop at the side entrance, briefly opening the door and shutting it again. Randy then began his rounds at 1 a.m. Approximately at 1.20 a.m., the thieves drove to the side entrance, parked their vehicle, and walked up to the side door. They rang the buzzer that connected them to Rick through an intercom, and told him that they were police investigating a disturbance. He could see them on the CCTV wearing what he thought were real police uniforms, so he let them in at 1.24 a.m. Rick let them into a locked foyer that separated the side door from the museum. They asked him if there was anyone else in the museum and ordered him to bring them down. Rick radioed Randy to return to the security desk. One of the men told Rick that he looked familiar and then they might have a warrant for his arrest. He was ordered to come out from behind the desk and prove his identification. He complied. He was then forced against the wall 
legs were spread apart, and he was handcuffed. Randy then walked into the room as this was happening, and another one of the thieves handcuffed him. Once the guards were handcuffed, the thieves revealed their true intentions to rob the museum. The guards had duct tape wrapped around their heads and eyes. Without asking for directions, they forced the guards into the basement where they were handcuffed to a steam pipe and workbench. It took the thieves only 11 minutes to subdue the guards. It's now 1.35 in the morning. It is thought that they waited 13 additional minutes before starting the heist to be sure that no police were called. As the thieves approached the paintings in the Dutch room, a device that beeps when a patron is too close started to go off. It is smashed almost immediately. They took Storm on the Sea of Galilee and a lady and a gentleman in black and threw them on the marble floor, shattering the glass. They then used a blade to cut both canvases out of their stretchers. They then removed a large Rembrandt self-portrait from the wall. It was left leaning up against a cabinet. Investigators believe that it was left because it was too large. Instead, a small self-portrait etched by Rembrandt was removed. They then removed landscape with obelisk and the concert from their frames. The final piece taken out of the Dutch room was an ancient Chinese gi. It is now 1.51 a.m. They moved to a narrow hallway dubbed the short gallery on the second floor. They began removing screws from a frame that displayed a Napoleonic flag, but gave up halfway and instead took the exposed eagle that was on top of the flagpole. They then took five Diga sketches and Chez Tortani. As the thieves were leaving, they decided to check on the guards one last time. They removed the tapes from the CCTV and the data printouts from the motion detecting equipment. But what they didn't realize was the movement data was also captured on a hard drive. As they were moving the stolen artwork into their van, they left the frame for Chez Tortani in the security office. The robbery lasted a total of 81 minutes, ending at 2.15 a.m. As the next guard shift arrived, they realized that something was wrong when they could not establish contact with anyone inside to be let in. They had to call the security director, and once he entered the building, found no one at the desk, he called the police. When the police arrived and searched the building, they found the night shift guards still tied up in the basement. A total of 13 works were stolen that night, and those items are the concert, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, a lady and gentleman in black, landscape with obelisk, Chez Tortani, self-portrait of Rembrandt, La Sorte de Pesag, Cortez Ox Environs de Florence, Program for an Artistic Soiree 1, Program for an Artistic Soiree 2, Three Mounted Jockeys, an Ancient Chinese Gi, and a French Imperial Eagle. At the time of the heist, the value was estimated at $200 million, and by the year 2000, it was estimated at $500 million. It was considered the largest museum heist in terms of value until the Dresden Green Vault burglary where royal jewelry was stolen in 2019. Because Isabella stated in her will that the collection should not be moved, the empty frames from the stolen paintings remain hanging in their prospective locations. The museum had a lack of insurance and funds, so the director solicited help from Sotheby's and Christie's Auction House 
to post a $1 million reward. This was increased to $5 million in 1997, and in 2017, the reward was doubled to $10 million with an expiration date. It was extended following an outpouring of tips from the public. This is considered the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations expired in 1995, so the thieves and anyone participating in the heist cannot be prosecuted. Immediate control of the case was taken over by the FBI on the grounds that the artwork might have crossed state lines. There was little to no evidence left at the scene, so investigators called it a unique case. The guards and witnesses in the street described one of them as being about five foot nine and in his late thirties with a medium build, and the other being about six feet tall and in his early thirties with a little bit of a heavier build. Rick Abeth was one of the first to be investigated because of his suspicious behavior. Some believe that when he opened the side door and then immediately shut it was a signal to the thieves parked outside. He told the authorities that he did this routinely just to make sure that the door was locked. Many colleagues state that if he had done this routinely, it would have shown up on the computer printouts and his supervisors would have put a stop to it. The motion detectors also never went off during the entire 81-minute heist. It only detected Rick's footsteps during his patrol. A security consult inspected the equipment several weeks after the incident and determined that they were working properly. Rick continues to maintain his innocence. In 2015, a security video was released by the FBI showing Rick buzzing in an unidentified man and talking to him at the security desk. He states that he doesn't recall the incident or even recognize the man in question. But several of his colleagues have come forward and said that the man was Rick's boss, the deputy security chief. Whitey Bulger was one of the most powerful crime bosses in Boston and claims he did not organize the heist. He states that he sent his agents out in an attempt to figure out who did it because it happened on his turf and he wanted his fair share of the profits. FBI agent Thomas McShane determined that Whitey's strong ties with Boston Police Department could explain how the thieves got legitimate uniforms. Whitey also had relations with the Irish Republican Army, and Agent McShane believed that the bogus fire alarm trigger was a calling card of the IRA. His investigation did not produce any evidence to tie Whitey or the IRA to the heist. A retired art and antiques investigator for Scotland Yard believes Whitey gave some of the artwork to the IRA and that they are most likely in Ireland. Brian McDevitt was a con man from Boston who failed to rob the Hyde Collection in Glen Falls, New York in 1981. He dressed as a FedEx driver, had handcuffs, duct tape, and was trying to steal a Rembrandt. The parallels to this case fascinated the FBI so much that they decided to interview him in 1990. He also denied any involvement and refused to polygraph. His fingerprints were run, but they did not match any from the crime scene. He later moved to California and conned his way into television and film writing. In 1994, museum director Ann Hawley received an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to be attempting to negotiate a return of the artwork. They explained that they were only a third party and did not know the identity of the thieves. 
They requested immunity for themselves and everyone involved, as well as $2.6 million. The letter said if the museum was interested, they should print a coded message in the Boston Globe. Anne contacted the FBI, who then contacted the Globe, and had the coded message printed in the May 1, 1994 edition. A second letter was received just a few days later, in which the writer acknowledged the museum's interest in negotiating. The writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, but no other letters were ever sent to the museum. The FBI announced in March of 2013 that they had made significant progress in their investigation. They stated that they had high confidence that they had identified the thieves and believed that they were members of a criminal organization based in the Mid-Atlantic and New England. It is also believed that there was an attempted sale of the stolen artwork in Philadelphia in 2002. In 2015, the FBI made a statement that both thieves were deceased. Although they were never publicly identified, sources say that they were associated with a gang in Dorchester. The gang was loyal to the mafia boss Frank Salemi and ran their operations out of an auto shop that was run by Carmelo Merlino. It is believed that Merlino's associates gained knowledge of the museum's weaknesses after another gangster, Louis Royce, cased it in 1981. Some believe that while Royce was in prison, his associate Stephen Rossetti may have ordered the robbery. Other associates of Merlino's were Robert Gorinti and Robert Gentile. In 2004, Robert Gorinti died from cancer and his widow Ellen contacted the FBI and claimed that her husband owned some of the stolen artwork. She went on further stating that when her husband got sick, he gave them to Gentile for safekeeping. Of course, Gentile denied all of it and claims he knows nothing about their whereabouts. Gentile was indicted on drug charges in 2012, and while taking a polygraph test, it indicated that he was lying when he was asked if he had any knowledge of the heist or the location of the artwork. During a retest, he told FBI investigators that Ellen showed him the missing Rembrandt self-portrait. The polygraph indicated that he was telling the truth. A few days after the polygraph retest, the FBI stormed his home in Manchester with a search warrant. They found a secret ditch under a false floor in the shed, but it was empty. His son told investigators that the ditch flooded a few years ago and that his dad was upset about what was stored in there. In the basement, they found a copy of the Boston Herald from March 1990 that reported the heist along with what each piece might sell for on the black market. Nothing else was found in his home indicating he ever had the paintings. He never opted to share any information regarding the locations of them either. Once out of prison, he spoke with an investigative reporter and claimed that he was framed by the FBI. He explained how being in prison negatively impacted his finances and his personal life. David Turner was another associate of Marlino. In 1992, the FBI began investigating him when they were told that he had access to the paintings. That same year, Merlino was arrested for cocaine trafficking and told authorities that he could return the paintings for a reduced prison sentence. He asked Turner to track down the paintings, but was unsuccessful. Despite Turner's claims of innocence, the FBI believed he was one of the thieves. They had evidence that indicated he traveled to Florida to pick up a cocaine order just days before the heist. 
His credit card information showed he stayed there through the night of the robbery, but the FBI believes that he was just creating an alibi. In 1999, the FBI arrested Turner, Marlino, and Stephen Rossetti in a sting operation the day they planned to rob a Lomas Fargo vault. The FBI told Turner that they had information that he participated in the museum heist, and if he returned the paintings, they would let him go. He continued to claim his innocence and that he did not know the whereabouts of the stolen artwork. The jury found him guilty on all charges for the attempted Lomas Fargo vault heist, and he was sent to prison in 2001. Marlino died in prison in 2005. Stephen Rossetti was freed in October of 2019, and Turner was freed in November of 2019. Another person that was suspected to be involved with the museum heist was Bobby Donati, who was murdered in 1991 in a gang war with an influential crime family. Notorious art thief Miles Connor was in jail at the time of the heist, but he believed that Bobby and a guy named David Houghton were the masterminds behind everything, so that's why he spoke with authorities. He had worked with Bobby in the past and knew the skills that he had. He further claimed that David Houghton visited him in jail after the heist and told him all about their plan to return the art for a reduced sentence. This was exactly what Miles had done in the past. He believes they hired low-level gangsters to carry out the robbery. Unfortunately, David Houghton died two years after the heist. Miles did tell investigators that he could assist in returning the artwork in exchange for the reward that was posted and his freedom. Investigators denied his demands based on lack of evidence that he knew where the stolen artwork was. Fictional accounts of the robbery and what occurred to the paintings were explored on the following television shows. Blindspot, The Blacklist, The Venture Bros, and The Simpsons. There have also been novels written about the fictional accounts, and they are The Art Forger by B.A. Shaprio, Artful Deception by James J. McGovern, The Hidden Things by Jamie Mason, and The Mob Zone by Joseph DiMatteo. As of December 2020, there have been no new leads or updates in the museum heist. A random fact, the museum's reward has only been exceeded by the U.S. government's $25 million bounty for Osama bin Laden. And that is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Heist. I do want to let you know that next week I will not have an episode because of Christmas and New Year's. Have a wonderful holiday. Please check out this promo from my friends at A Little Bit Grim. Hi, I'm Taylor. Hi, I'm Jenny. Are you into ghosts, aliens, or murder? It's okay if you do, because we love terrible things too. It's why we started our podcast, A Little Bit Grim. We talk about the paranormal, true crime, folklore, cults, conspiracies, some disasters, and every other heinous thing that could possibly happen to a person. It's a little bit spooky. It's a little bit funny. And it's a little bit grim. And you can find us wherever you like to stream your podcasts. And find us on your favorite social media platforms. We'll see you there. Goodbye! Thank you for listening to today's episode. Be sure to follow me on social media to get notifications when a new episode airs. You can find me on Twitter at The Murder Bucket, Instagram at Murd Bucket, and Facebook 
at Bucket Murd.